Welcome back to The Short Game. This is the show where we discuss short video games, the kind of games you can probably complete in an evening or a weekend, uh, but most importantly, the kind of games that can try things that you just can't try in larger AAA-style games, indie games, and other smaller experiences. I'm your host, Reagan Kelly, and I am joined this week once again by my full complement of co-hosts, uh, Laura Nash. How are you doing, Laura? I'm doing great. Uh, Nate Heininger. You're looking good in your little beanie. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, it's good to be here. Our listeners can't see it, sadly, but it's very impressive. Nate Zisu. Think of Steve Zisu. <laughs> it's red. Basically, I'm wearing a red beanie. Let's get right to the point. That guy's thrilling hold, radio. Hold, hold the show. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Reagan, you really paint a word picture. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, I am joined by my... Uh, bro host and real life twin brother Shane. How are you doing, Shane? I am super. Thanks for asking. Uh, we are talking this week about a game that we've been looking forward to doing since, um, well, I guess since we got it for free, <laughs> the Swapper. Um, Nate, you're the one that recommended we we cover this game and dive into it a little bit. Uh, where did you hear about the Swapper? Well, as a longtime PS4 owner. I like to stay up on top of the games that are coming out each month for free. I've gotten some really good games before. How long uh, How long of a time have you been a PS4 owner? Um, well, let me think. I got it in... Well, I was born in 1985. Yeah, mm, I got it for Christmas of the year before last. So, it, you know, I've had it for, what, four, 14 months now. And nice. so I've gotten a lot of really great games for free. A lot of games that I've spent a lot of time on. Um, but... The Swapper came up, and it's a game that I'd heard about. I think everyone had probably seen uh, before, but maybe not something that I was just ready to dive into. But once it came up for free, of course, my interests were uh, were perked. And uh, a couple of people that I work with also have PS4s and heard, had heard great things. So downloaded it, kind of started it, and immediately reached out to you guys. and like, this game I think will be perfect. Uh, knowing how much we all love puzzle platformers, uh, puzzle platformers with a that are, I don't necessarily want to say this game is story driven, but the story plays a major part in it. Like the puzzles drive it for sure, but it it is a a story heavy video game. It's got a story that makes you think. Exactly, and I'm really really glad that we all kind of jumped on board and had a chance to play it because I love this game. I was not expecting to like this game. I actually got this game March 4th of last year. I think, which is when the Humble Indie Bundle 11 went up. This was in a bundle along with Guacamelee Gold Edition, Dust and Elysian Tale, the Gianna Sisters, Twisted Dreams, and Antichamber, and What's Yours is Mine. And actually, that's a pretty great bundle. If you happen to have picked up uh, Humble Indie Bundle 11, you already have this game sitting in your Steam library. Um, but I downloaded the game because it has a really cool art style. I was very intrigued by its art, and we'll talk about that. But I booted it up and I played through the tutorial and I did not like it. 
actually it wasn't so much that I didn't like it as that I had just gotten a bunch of other really interesting games and I think I ended up playing Guacamelee and never went back to the swapper. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned Guacamelee because I just got done playing some Guacamelee and I think this might be the opposite. I think Guacamelee <laughs> might be the opposite of the swapper. The swapper is definitely a slow burn. Um, it it is and not Guacamelee a- is a quick burn like a chili pepper. <laughs> This is hard. It's weird to say, but it is not a game that is immediately gripping. Like I, I do think you have to be willing to, to commit to it. And I know we're going to talk about this a little bit more, but there is certainly a moment that it really clicks. Um, but I can see, you know, even the premise, hearing that it, it's a game where you play as a, as a as a character that has a gun that can create a second image of yourself or multiple images of yourself, and you solve puzzles. It doesn't um, like that's not an, an immediately gripping, you know, um, like what's the word I'm looking for? Mechanic Elevator pitch. Elevator pitch. Yeah, yeah, mechanic or yeah, pitch. Well, I think but this once you see how they utilize it is when it really connects. Yeah, I think this multiple man approach is one that I've seen in a lot of different games. Um, sometimes you stack different versions of yourself. Sometimes it's temporal. Sometimes it's. You know, but this version is, um, to be more specific, when you create the images of yourself, you can swap control. Um, when you move, um, you create an image of yourself, you move at the same time and pace as that other uh, version of yourself, and then you can use the swapper gun to swap into the other uh, clone of yourself and move in tandem. So you can actually That's just right. swap control as well of who's in the lead, who who is the leading version of yourself yeah this is really tricky to explain without visuals um let me let me give it a stab um i i think it's the most important thing to know about it is like you can clone yourself anywhere on screen that you can point to where there's no obstruction and once you've done that the character that you've just cloned is going to move you're controlling all of them simultaneously and they act simultaneously and identically which means that some basic platforming elements that you know normally wouldn't be a problem can become tricky because now you've got to navigate them with two guys instead of one. Or as many as five at a time. And you can swap between them. Same rules apply. If you can point your gun at a clone that you've created, you can swap between them. And you might be asking, why is it necessary to swap between them if all five are being moved at exactly the same? But the only way you can create more clones or you create clones from the one that you are controlling in that moment. And also the objective of every puzzle is to collect these orbs and you have to be controlling in control of the, the um, character or the, the clone as it touches the orbs. Also, it's totally okay to let these clones die as long as your character your your player clone that you're actually controlling isn't dying so they can die by creating a lot of clones (laughs) that just fall into pits or uh evaporate into the air there's certain little beams that will dissolve them or that might merge right back into your character if you touch one of your clones it merges back up with you and uh, uh and suddenly you're able to make another clone so uh it is pretty important which one of these clones you are, but as long as your clones are within line of sight of each other, they can swap places and you can switch from one clone to the next. I, I love the puzzles in this game, and the game really is 
the the kind of plot and the navigation of the levels of the game really is just connective tissue between a long list of room puzzles, like one room puzzles yeah, that you really can clever puzzles in sometimes almost any order. Initially, one at a time, kind of teaching you some of the basics, and then opening up into uh, the ability to jump around between these different collections of puzzles that you'll you'll be tackling in different parts of the ship and the, the station and things like that. And the the room puzzles tend to kind of, I found, have kind of a theme together in each group where, you know, one kind of area was trying to teach me something like using my clones to create a chain uh, to walk, you know, one after another to, to reach an area that I otherwise wouldn't have been able to walk to or use the clones in a, in a way that let me fall a great distance by falling and then placing and a clone stationary on the ground and swapping immediately to it. Uh, without dying. Well, my original clone no, my fault would fall to his death, but my new clone it. would be fine because I'd made him right. So the Shane is. We've mostly been talking about puzzles, the room puzzles themselves, but um, the connective tissue between them. Um, you are exploring a spaceship, and um, those areas, you know, almost like worlds in Mario or any other levels. There are groupings of, um, you know, the asteroid, the command bay. Um, different groupings that will have a uniting mechanic, um, something that you discover as you're playing. And they do get harder and harder, and you get rewarded as you uh, with more and more orbs as you get harder puzzles. Um, one of the hard things about this game um, is it is hard to gauge time if you know how many orbs you need, 124 by the end of the game, because you feel like you're very behind early on the game. So one thing I'll caution people when they're playing is if you get... Um, you get started and you think you're going to be progressing very slowly. Um, the later puzzles do have larger payouts. There are a lot more um, rewards later in the game. It goes faster. It does, uh, yeah. You, you get to move distances quicker. Lots of little tricks to make it uh, easier on you. Um, as she mentioned, we are exploring a spaceship. Um, and you're getting little drips and drabs of plot as you run along. But the heart of the game and most of the time in the game is spent in the puzzles. Uh, themselves. You go into a room, you solve the puzzle, you collect the orbs, you move to the next area. first thing that struck me about this game was its really unique and interesting visual style. Um, something that I I've, haven't seen a whole lot of other games do is that this game was not, this game wasn't 3D rendered. Uh, it was actually built. Uh, the, the developers were a pair of students uh, from the University of Helsinki who basically made this game in their spare time. Um, and they built all of the assets in the game themselves out of actual materials, clay, metal, tinfoil, uh, tin other sculptural materials. And 
then photographed them and incorporated those assets into the game rather than creating them entirely digitally. There's some really cool photos. We'll have some links in the show notes. The look of the game is incredible. I tried to think of another game that had a similar aesthetic to this game, and the only thing I could come up with was like um, Clay Fighter or Claymates from back in the SNES days. <laughs> but even those like looked really, really jacked up. Yeah, uh, I mean, really like, janky. Yeah, yeah, there's been lots of experiments with paper. Um, Tengami is a, a game that's like a pop-up book. Uh, Lumio City is uh, all paper cutouts. Um, and I remember the uh, Kirby's Epic Yarn, which is all felt, but I haven't seen anything made out of clay. Yeah. Yeah, I I, th- I think this is pretty unique in that way. I do. Th- you're right, actually. There's a Kirby game coming out um, called like Kirby's Rainbow something or other. I think it's for the Wii U. And that's made of clay. Um, and it has, I wouldn't say that it's at all similar to this though, because what they've done with this is they built these elements out of clay, you know, clay, um, character models, clay, sculptural elements and so on. Uh, and then they've applied some really interesting graphical filters to them. There's some blurring effects that they're using to a really good, uh, effect. Uh, there's really interesting lighting effects, uh, and the lighting effects actually play across these, you know, clay looking things in such a way that it really looks like this is a organic place. Uh, You have a feeling that you're sort of looking at a a scale model of a space station, but it really has a sense of place and a really interesting look. It doesn't just look like a bunch of clay. I I didn't immediately like the art style of the game. I thought it was maybe a little too dark, a little too like, hey, we're a space game. Uh, But the more I got into it and the more I, the, the, the characters developed and the more the story developed, the more and more I actually appreciated the art styling and the more I, I I liked it and the more I enjoyed it. And as, as I played, I think it, it really plays a major part in the overall aesthetic of the game. Yeah. And they do some really cool stuff that is, it's purely to show you what the world looks like. There's a couple scenes where you're just moving through them and it might pull back a little bit and just kind of show you a bigger picture of the ship or I, there's, there's a couple scenes I can think of where you're riding essentially an elevator from the bottom part of the ship up to a top part of the ship. Yeah, where there are a few situations back. where it zooms way in as well, like in the airlocks mm-hmm. or things like that. Yeah. You get a more detailed view. And I, and those were the moments where I actually really did appreciate the art style. There's an anti-gravity element where you're just moving from one side of the ship to the other by going outside. And it has very little gameplay. But at first it felt, I thought maybe there was going to be a puzzle built into it, or I thought that this was going to have something to do with the actual the gameplay. But rather, I think it was about world building and mood building. And the more I got into those, the more I got into the game, the more I came to appreciate the style and the kind of total package that they put together with this game, let alone the fact that it was built from clay. I mean, that fact alone is 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 pretty cool. Like, you don't hear very often of real-life raw materials being used in a video game for the, for the, the majority of the art. Nate, you were saying that you didn't initially take to the visual style of the game, and I think I had the same reaction when I first started playing it. Um, the main reason that I kind of didn't initially latch onto it is that it has a very limited color palette. Uh, it's all sort of dark blues and blacks and um, and shades of gray with white lighting. 
But I think there's a really good gameplay reason for that. It does initially kind of seem a little sterile and a little, um, you know, not colorful. Yeah, and you start walking around as this, like, little um, kind of stick figure almost spaceman who moves stick figure with an astronaut suit on yeah Yeah. and and it's like and and the way that the way that the spaceman walks is just like really awkward like crazy steps (laughs) like ministry of silly walks clunk 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 but with the uh with the color scheme it really serves an, an important gameplay purpose and that's that a little bit later in the game not very far into it um, they start inter- introducing colored lights that have really important gameplay implications. Basically, there's blue lights that if you try to shoot your swapper gun through them, you can't create clones in that blue lighted area. And then there's red lights that if you try to shoot your swapper gun through them, you can't swap with a clone standing in that red lighted area or out, or past it. You can't shoot your swap uh ray through it um and so that color scheme is really important to the gameplay and not having those colors appear er elsewhere is pretty important as well i mean i play yeah and they become the crux of the puzzles for the majority of the game those red and blue lights are your major obstacles i I played another game um that has echoes of this uh solo person exploring a cave-like environment waking mars um which is a very colorful game um it's as if you know this game is very sterile in some ways, um, not in the fact that everything is clean or minimalist, but in the way that you're alone, isolated. Um, waking Mars, you are always in contact with another character. You're alone for most of it, but you're essentially gardening. So in that game, it's very colorful. There's lots of life forms, and as you finish levels, there's a change. There's a big, um, you know, birth of actual plants or sprouting in this game when you finish a level um all the colored lights all of that life you've created goes away and you're left again in the isolated environment um it's a very i did play this game with limited lighting because it's actually very dark and hard to see if you don't if you you know um and i think that the palette is very nihilistic in a way It, it adds to the isolationism the very trapped alone in the spaceship quality of the game is supported by the color palette it's not immediately engaging but if you've played it for a little while you start digging it if you give this game long enough it will it will show you something that immediately turns that around and it's interesting we were chatting back and forth with each other while we were playing this game and there was a moment in this game that i think all of us responded to in a way that oh now i see what this game is about well so yeah this is the moment like this is a sign of a good game or at least a good puzzle game or a good maybe i don't know if like physics-based game is is a term that gets thrown around a ton but this is the the moment that the game turned around for me and i and i realized that i it's not what i was expecting and it became inc- it's substantially more interesting to me. And basically, up until this point, we've you've probably been playing for about a half an hour to forty five minutes of the game, depending on how good you are. Where you've just been doing these left to right swapping, not incredibly complicated, but there's been only a couple dimensions to the way that you've been moving your character. And you come to this area, and there is just an arrow pointing up with a noticeable gap in the ceiling. You're at the bottom of a pretty 
pretty large pit, really, really far down. And so you've probably noticed at this, like, uh, leading up to this point, that when you're in the... Basically, I played on, you know, a, a DualShock 4. The left trigger is what you use to create a clone. The right trigger is what you use to swap them. As you're holding the left trigger... I had not realized at the moment, but basically time comes to a standstill or rather time moves really, really, really slowly. And that really hadn't been a play yet. Like you just got to create your clones and you move forward. In this moment, you put a, a clone in the air. And then as soon as you create the clone, you can use the swap gun to swap to that clone that's now in the air. And then you can, from that clone, point higher in the air, create your clone, and swap to that one, and you can essentially scale upwards. And it, it's it's an incredible moment because it gives you this enormous empowerment. You realize suddenly, not only can I use this swapper gun to create clones to, for example, stand on switches or push boxes around, but I can use these clones to essentially fly through the game, create these little bridges of clones that will let me, you know, swap from place to place across these enormous distances in the level. And it doesn't matter if then those clones fall to their death. You just have to survive. Yeah. And, and very often it's important that they do fall to their death because you might, you have a limited amount of clones and you need the previous versions of yourself, which is a whole other issue. <laughs> um, but the other versions of yourself, you need them to fall to your their death so that you have another clone that you can send forward mm -hmm. and the game opens up dramatically and the slowdown of the time thing adds a whole other kind of aesthetic to the game where you're just floating in space and everything comes to almost a complete standstill and the music and everything you can take in kind of the scenery and it it's it's great mm -hmm. It's one of those moments sort of like the very first time you pull off a fling in Portal. You know, in Portal, probably the most dramatic aha, amazing moment with the portal gun was when you realize how the conservation of momentum works when you're moving through portals and you're able to pull off that first time when you throw yourself far across the level. Speedy thing goes in, speedy thing comes out. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And uh, that moment in Portal just gives you this enormous, wow, I wasn't expecting that I, I could do that. You suddenly have this incredible freedom of movement that you didn't realize that you had before. You had mm -hmm. the power to do it, mm -hmm. but the world wasn't set up for you yet. Yeah, it's not the cape in Mario. It's an empowerment, but it's not a power up. It's a realization that you can use this power that you've had from the very first moment of the game to do this new incredible thing. And that's and, huge. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. I wonder how many people came to this realization before that single up arrow. I know I didn't. And based on our conversations, I, at least Shane and Reagan, I know you didn't as either. Like... How could you? You're in these little space capsules. There's no yeah. height. So until exactly. you see the up arrow, there is no height to play with. And you can think about going up, but there's a ceiling. So it, it, it's unlikely that you'd get to that moment. And I think the one of the really special things about that height mechanic, that ability to fly across long distance in any direction, up, down, left, right, is that um, before you realize as mechanic, the spaces between puzzles were just walking, mm -hmm. walking between airlocks. And now um, a lot of it is 
flying, jumping, um, really exploring at a huge distance. The, the areas between puzzles become more interesting because it's a time to play in a way that you can't in a single room puzzle with limited height. Mm -hmm. It's fun too. Like on a, just a gameplay, it's fun to swap, like to be floating in air and creating these different versions of yourself and swapping between them. And it's, a little morbid, but it's kind of <laughs> silly to see the the one that you, that was just you. And again, there's a whole thing on the plot about whether that's you or not. But like the body that you had just inhabited just fall and crumple, and doesn't matter. You're you're controlling a new version of yourself, and you can just port between all of them and just float around space just forever, or until uh, you it, run out. Yeah, <laughs> of clones. Well, right, because but the if you're resource high. that you're having to conserve in most of these puzzle scenarios is how many clones do I have? Yeah. How many of these clones will I need to get from place to place? And right. I think because I'm always the one who's going to talk about the tiny little sound design details, the death sounds on oh. the clones were some of my favorite things. And that's oh also when I got the clay actually more than anything else. The crumpling of the dead body Crumple. sounds like the squish the, of clay. Yeah, and you yeah. see the body collapsing, always different. A little bit of a, you can see the physics A little bit of ragdoll, yeah. There's yeah. some ragdoll there. They collapse in interesting ways, and the squish sound of them is displeasing and extraordinarily interesting at the same yeah. time. Yeah, and then you hear the air escaping from their suit, which in a, in a way kind of reminds me that thing was breathing air. That's That was me a second ago. Yeah, it's kind of disturbing. Escaping from their crumbling clay body. <laughs> what is a soul? <laughs> Almost every puzzle will have a just a bright shining light that if you go through it, it will basically kill every clone that you have on the map and it kind of acts as a restart for you. So you can have three or four of yourself all running around and you go, and it's just, <laughs> and they and they all die and it's yeah. terrible. I'd like to talk about that for a second because that was a clever thing for me. Like that little glittery light that is at the entrance of every puzzle, not only does it wipe all of your clones off the map, but it also acts as a save point so that if you were to like jump to your doom, you would always return there. And that worked really well. And there was some other little details in the puzzle design that I liked. One was you in most of the puzzle, I don't know how consistent they were about this, but in many of the puzzles, there were lights that were used to guide you as a player. And there, so Reagan, you mentioned the red and the blue lights that were used to kind of limit your ability to swap or to move or to clone. And But there were also background lights that are just part of the scenery that tended to be a guide for the important areas to swap to or to stand. Mm -hmm. And I found it really helpful in those puzzles that were some of them really hard, really just brain teaser puzzles to just be able to look at the map and tell, okay, well, you know, the hallway is probably not as important as the ledge because the ledge is really well lit by a little tiny bulb that's like pointing right at it. And the yeah. hallway is kind of dark. Or sometimes in that same note, you could use the environment to help you solve the puzzles. Absolutely. There would be a huge wash of red light or blue light, but maybe right in the middle of it, there would be just a little gap of, of clear light, of no light or a white light like you're talking about. And you just kind of use that to like, okay, I'm probably going to have to put a clone there because that's the only place in this entire area that I can put a clone. And they definitely give you little hints if you if you really pay attention to the design. And this comes out the more and more puzzles you solve. 
that they do definitely guide you a little bit. But like you said, there are, this, this game has a really good scale because it starts out, you feel like you're very, very smart. And then about <laughs> halfway through, you feel like a total dum-dum because you're just killing countless amounts of yourself, trying out multiple different things. It, 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 I've yeah, been, that lethal it, experimentation yeah, you have to it, do to solve a puzzle. Uh, I'll yeah. tell you one thing. There was um, only one level where my physical ability to get the timing right kept me from beating the puzzle. I, I mentally solved the puzzle way before I executed it. That only happened once. On the whole, once you figured it out, timing wasn't the issue. It was positioning or the finicky details, not necessarily you know releasing yeah. the buttons at the right time. Only one puzzle did I ever um, have my inability to hold down two keys on the keyboard at the same time. This can be <laughs> certainly a this can be certainly a game of inches where you have to have you have to place your clones in in very specific spots or it will not work. And you might have the right idea, but until you can find that exact positioning so that when you move left on one guy, the guy that all like your other clone that's also moving left maybe doesn't fall off the button entirely or something like that like it it takes some repetition. Yeah, and I'll of, say that of experimentation. And um, one of the things that the you know puzzle games often have a timer element. This game is actually very freeform. You take as long as you need to solve the puzzles, um, which is funny because there's actually a some voiceover in the game, and often they're like they're asking you to hurry up, and I knew that that was complete bunk because there's no reason <laughs> yeah, like there is no reason to take you know no less than the full amount of time to complete the puzzles if i took six hours on one nothing would change in the plot yeah, or you so. could just leave it you can just leave it which we haven't talked about yet but it is a it is an action plot but you're right there is no there is there's no a voiceover need. telling you things are urgent and you really need to hurry up but if you don't solve the puzzle no one's going anywhere Going back to what you and Nate were saying about sort of precision being required and, and rather not being required, that was one of the things I think that initially put me off about this game. It has a very unique control scheme. Um, if you're playing this on a, on a computer, it's actually probably a little more natural because you're using a sort of directional keys and a mouse to move around. The directional keys will move your character in any direction, and then the mouse is used to kind of aim the gun, aim the swapping gun. On a gamepad, this game can feel really unnatural for a platformer because actually you're controlling the um, the character movement with the left stick and you're moving a little pointer, a little sort of tiny pixel-sized crosshair, yeah. crosshair-looking kind of dot around the screen with your right stick. Uh, and the character will look and aim wherever you put that little dot. And that's really unnatural for a platformer. I'm not used to platformers where if I hold right, my character might still be looking left even though he's running right. Uh, yeah, I was I was definitely running backwards a lot. Did you, I mean, you could click the right stick to like quick change direction? No, I nope. didn't notice that. No, I, I, <laughs> I mean, I ran backwards most of the time. I played keyboard and mouse and I know it was originally designed that way and they added game gamepad integration. Mm -hmm. Um, when they released yeah, there's a it. Credit, there's a credit in the credits for who who had, it was like gamepad control scheme developer or something <laughs> like that. It's the, clearly, it was a hard game to adapt for a gamepad, but I thought they actually did a really amazing yeah. job specifically 
for the PS4 version in a couple of ways. One was, you know, first off, it clearly was designed for a mouse, but they made it work great for a gamepad to the point where I never really noticed a big difference. And then secondly, like they they took advantage of some of the of the finer features of the DualShock 4, like the touchpad. Like if you're playing on a PS4 and you're browsing around the map, you're scrolling using the touchpad, which actually felt really nice. I don't think I ever actually did that. Um, I used the joysticks for everything. I had no problems with the control. I thought it was a little weird that you would have your guy basically running backwards unless you took the time to move the cursor from one side to the other. But I thought it was very seamless. And I I thought the two joysticks actually having not played it on a mouse i imagine that it would have it, it felt nice like yeah. i liked being able to to whip around easily and create my different clones in space because timing like we were saying is pretty important i never once felt impeded by the control yeah and that's the nice thing about it timing is important but you also essentially time freezes for the most part while you're placing clones um and so it really takes some of that edge off of the slightly awkward control scheme to be able to really take your time, even in moments where your character is literally free falling. You can pause the action more or less and take the time to place things exactly where they want to be. Free falling. Boo. Now I'm free. Oh, stop that. Do we have anything more to say about the game before we break for for spoilers? Oh, do we want to have do we want to have a gripe fest before the spoiler break? Yeah, we'll gripe All right, before spoiler. I have break. a gri- I have some gripes about this game. There's a lot of interesting details about the plot that we haven't gotten a chance to discuss yet because I think almost any discussion of the plot edges into spoiler territory. Um, it's a pretty simple and small plot, and so talking about it in much detail very quickly gets into uh, into spoilers. There's one thing I wanted to talk about, and I know we had talked about this a little bit as we each played through the game, but you actually made the comparison a moment ago to Portal. And I just kind of wanted to talk about that real quick because I think it's it's easy to draw some parallels between this game and, and Portal, but I don't know if it does it entire justice, but there are some things that are are, are very similar. It's a... Puzzle platformer that involves a unique gun. Mm-hmm. Well, I would say Portal isn't really a platformer. It's more well, of a first-person puzzle yeah. shooter. The okay. comparison to Portal for me comes from the fact that this game, as well as Portal, has a, a long, long string of puzzles that stem from a single mechanic that's kind of a mobility focused mechanic Mm -hmm. that's true and then they throw in environmental details that skew the ability of your gun like if we're looking at portal there's the different uh goos (laughs) the different i don't know liquids that get spewed on the walls. different types of surfaces that you can shoot your portals onto all sorts of Mm -hmm. things yeah um it's about giving you this incredible almost overpowered cool mechanic that gives you these incredible abilities and then finding all sorts of interesting ways to curtail that and make you work within limitations that are specific to each puzzle. Yeah, totally. I wouldn't expect portal at all. I would expect something. um, If you are looking for the blend of humor and, you know, bright lights of portal, this is the wrong place. (laughs) Uh, This is intentionally, you know, 2001 or, you know, Bioshock E in exploring an environment, but portal for the act that you're doing a mechanic that opens up new possibilities in a otherwise normal room. I'll buy that. 
Well, it's it's a character with a unique gun while a female voice tells you a lot of stuff. We haven't gotten in, we haven't gotten into the plot yet. But if you just give that description, that sounds like Portal. But I mostly bring this up to say that it doesn't it, like any comparisons to Portal does not do the justice of the uniqueness of this game and it's an entirely different feel the atmosphere the mood the music the tone the plot everything is way darker basically and portal can get pretty dark but this game is is deeper is not the right word but it's somewhere in that in that range you're right it's more unique than it seems when i first started the game just just based on the visuals of the game i was really expecting it to basically be a metroidvania like i was basically expecting metroid with swapping that's kind of what I was expecting, and then I was initially like super disappointed by how shitty my jump was. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not a it's not a Mario jump, but it's so not a Metroid game. Like it's 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 not that at all. You never gain a new power in this game. You know, you would think you know you, you oh maybe eventually I'll get the ability to s- create more clones or to swap farther or to jump higher. Nothing, nothing like that. You start this game with the swapping gun, more or less, and then you end this game with exactly the same amount of powers. It's not something where you're leveling up. You're leveling up your mind. <laughs> something like level that. Up my consciousness through this game. Yeah, or you're, you're leveled down your morality, which <laughs> yeah. uh, that's all spoiler to the uh, post-spoiler break. just one little gripe about this game and it has to do with the uh with the progression from place to place and the kind of mechanic of of collecting the orbs um this game really sets you up to think that you can skip stuff you know each room you can go into it solve the puzzle collect the orbs that are your reward for that that room and then leave but sometimes you'll come in across puzzles that are too hard you know that that you don't quite get yet um, I came across quite a lot of those, and you can leave those for later and come back and, and go back to them. And because of that, I kind of expected that I wouldn't need to solve every single puzzle in the game in order to complete the game. I was kind of expecting that that mechanic would work a little differently, where maybe I need to solve 80% or 90% of the puzzles. Um, I kind of would have appreciated if they had handled it that way. But no, there there is a final gate towards the end of the game that you can't progress past unless you have 124 orbs. And there are exactly 124 orbs in the game. So when I got to that gate, I realized then that I had a kind of a slog in front of me where I had to go back and solve all of the puzzles that had completely stumped me for sometimes as much as, you know, 15 or 20 minutes of just staring at it and trying things. Um, and by that, by that point, very close to the end of the game, I went back and some of those puzzles I solved immediately. Maybe something had shifted in my brain, but others, I had to kind of look up a solution. I think I actually ended up completely stumped on three of the entire game's puzzles, which isn't that bad, but I did kind of feel like maybe it would have been okay if they just included more puzzles overall, maybe given me a little bit of a budget for skipping. Yeah, I 
on one hand, I can appreciate the fact that they require you to solve every single puzzle. Like, I, I like that. But the fact that they do it in a non-linear progression, they allow you to choose which order you solve the puzzles, was a little misleading. And I agree entirely. And I kind of ended up in, in, a, in a different situation in that in the open world open world's not the right word of it, but like the ability to tackle things in different orders actually led to me just, yeah, instead of a hallway, it's a, Mm. a, I don't know, a room with a lot of doors. And Mm. I just do natural playing it. I, I very, I almost never will enter a puzzle and leave without completing it. I don't like, I know Reagan, one thing you, you said is you like to, if it's too tricky, you'll leave and come back to it later. For me, I enter a room and I want, to finish it no matter how long it takes me. So I would enter a puzzle and finish it. And I got very, very far into the game, nearing the final thing before I realized that I had missed an entire section of the, of the, of the ship that I had to then traverse back to and do. And I don't know that that served any purpose. Like I don't, I don't, I almost rather wish that this game was linear because then I would know that I had to solve them in this order. Yeah, it kind of might as get... well have been linear, really. Exactly. If you're going to make me do them all anyway, just make me do them all in a progression. Like, I don't know what benefit it served. Uh, maybe It they... served some benefit for me because there were certain times where I was sitting there and I was playing this game and I was, like, ramming, like, five of my heads against this puzzle, <laughs> like, over and over and over again. And I just, I was like, I am go- I quit. I'm not going to do this one. I'm going to cu- I'm I'm just not going to play this puzzle. And eventually I came back to it and it took me 10 seconds, which made me feel like a freaking genius, which is great. And maybe I'm just wrong, you know. Yeah, I just think it would have been nice if if the worlds were more cut off from another because one of the um they do have some unlocks um where you have to have x number of orbs to complete. Yes, um, gates. The the gates are a little misleading because a lot of the early gates actually if you've completed all the levels you can you will pass that gate with flying colors. They'll actually require less than what the orbs you collect at that point. Um, something that is really frustrating is um, occasionally, the only time I accidentally skipped a section was when I thought I was veering very off course into a side section, and I was afraid to leave my area because I hadn't completed all the puzzles yet. Um, but I think it would have been better for me if each of the worlds with the mechanic you're exploring you know, five to ten puzzles if those were gated to go to the next area. So at least you completed that section. I would have felt like I never had to go back. Whereas the way the game is situated, I think it's going to be very difficult for anybody to reach the end point and not have to transport themselves across the map to pick up the one or two or five or six puzzles you missed. Yeah, because I tried to play this game in the progression that it lays forward. As as you guys were saying earlier, it basically, as the puzzles get more difficult, you're awarded more orbs. It starts with one and gets all the way up to like seven or eight at the end. And I played it with the intention of moving from one orb to two to three to four, you know. And it was only by my just not understanding of the way the ship laid out or whatever that I skipped an entire section of two or three orb puzzles. But I think what Laura is saying is it, it would be cool if they were like, here's a segment of ten. You can go about these 10 in any order you want to. You don't have to complete them in any particular order, but not the entire ship (laughs) being able to be progressed in virtually any order. 
I'm pro backtracking if there is additional mechanics or additional ways to view yeah. the world. Backtracking in this case just lets you revisit the puzzles when they're easier, which is mm. worthwhile, but it's also frustrating when you think you've when you've been solving much harder puzzles to have to go back in time. So I think now is probably a good time for us to go ahead and have our spoiler break. And then we'll... A broiler steak. <laughs> a broiler steak? That sounds That's delicious. Right. Here it is, ladies and gentlemen, your broiler steak. So um, a couple a couple weeks ago, Molly was like, have you ever heard of the... Um, dim drum break or what what's it called the amen break amen break the amen break i'm like i i have heard of the amen break and you've heard it multiple times <laughs> it is the opinion. break of the uh the short game yep great so, sure it is so yeah. it's the wilhelm scream of music so uh, we took the spoiler break to talk about the story but one thing i want to bring up uh, before we start is that many times um, i prefer stories that are inspired by mechanics um So this story actually feels like the mechanics came first. They thought of the swapper and then thought what story would be appropriate, what story would be inspired by this mechanic. Um, a lot of other times you see this going the opposite way where someone comes up with a story or a meaning and derives a mechanic from it. And more um, so often than not, it involves guns. It's like, more often <laughs> we've got a story fights. about... Laura, um, I love this when it happens in games. I mm-hmm. thought it was one of my favorite things about the dark room. Oh, exactly. So if the mechanic is explored first and the repercussions of it are added on as a layer, I find it a little more tacked on. And I feel like in this case, the story is very intrinsic to the mechanic, but it's not necessarily um, stemming from the mechanic. It's not a brilliant story, but I think it does serve. And it... Uh, it really does sort of relate to the mechanic. So let me kind of backtrack a little bit to the beginning of the game. Um, the very first moment of the game is a little enigmatic. You see what we discover is your player character uh, inside a little, little coffee can looking escape pod with little spindly legs on board the station that we later find out is the space station Theseus. And he's being ejected. The escape pod goes out into space, lands on the planet, and your tutorial, thank you for that. Thank you. Great. And, uh, and the, the tutorial happens there on the planet. You find the swapper device down on the planet. You um, play through a few levels and eventually you get to a teleporter that brings you back to space station Theseus. Um, and it's unclear who you are as a player character. All you can see is a little space suit. Um, and even when there does begin to be some dialogue, or I should say monologue, uh, where Chalmers uh, begins speaking to you over the PA of the space station, this deserted space station full of giant boulders sitting around everywhere. Um, it's never really explicit who your character is. Um, yeah, my biggest question about the game, I feel pretty solid on the vast majority of the plot. I still don't quite know who the main character, the character that you are controlling yeah. actually is. Well, I'm happy Something to tell you. Something I haven't brought up at all is that there's <laughs> watchers, um, these rocks, these intelligent rocks that when you pass by, they take over your screen and, um, you know, quote, say things to you. It's type text on the screen. Um, and a lot of the text deals with what is the... 
it becomes clear that these watchers have a sort of hive mind, a, a group consciousness. The great chain. A great chain. And a lot of the memory terminals you're getting plot nuggets from say similar things. But also that they've killed off the residents of the station. Inadvertently, the rocks themselves, the watchers, are not aware of the physical world. Well, they have no senses. (laughs) That's the theory. Their psychic (laughs) power has killed everyone on the station. Mm-hmm. So the, the premise of the station is that, uh, and we learn this all through just text that you read from terminals that you access. You know, it's a typical game trope. You access these terminals and you learn that Space Station Thesis, Theseus is one of several space stations that humanity created and strewn across the galaxy um, to collect resources to send back home to Earth. And uh, it's been out here for decades. It will be out here for decades more. It's meant to operate entirely independently of the Earth. And Earth is out of rock. It's out of it's out of cool stuff, and uh, all they've found are some weird steel that is apparently not related to the plot. They found a uh, a cool little silkworm type creature, also not related to the plot, and they found these watchers. And the watchers are gigantic rocks. Um, they're as Laura was describing. They're psychic talking rocks, and they're all over the place. When you pass by them, they say things to you in enigmatic sentences. Yeah, and it's it's hard to understand exactly why you know what they're saying. And I guess maybe they're like why can your character understand what they're saying? Because the majority of the of the research that's gone around these rocks is not that they're actually like talking to each other, like having conversations, but it's a like telekinetic connection that they've been around for millions of years and they just kind of understand how the world works and they don't have a society or anything like that necessarily. They just have a, a I assumed existence. That, I assumed the text on screen meant a telepathic connection because there is audio in the game. Um, there actually is a second character. You hear um, another scientist in a very similar spacesuit to you um, mm-hmm. female scientist running around. Um, at first, you don't actually know what role she's playing. She seems to be kind of mad at you. Um, as you continue with the game, she starts telling you what to do, and eventually um, it is revealed that... Um, well, I almost think you're getting too ahead of it, like, to get all... Because that's, like, the final scene of the plot. So I almost think you should... We should take a step back. So I would like to spend a moment going back to what Laura said about the the gameplay and the story relating to one another, because that was what I thought was most effective. It was the the fact that you are abandoning your body over and over again to to its death. Mm-hmm. And and Chalmers, the the sort of scientist that's speaking to you over the PA and, and occasionally running around just off screen, explains to you that the swapper gun, which was developed on Space Station Theseus based on what they learned from these watchers, um, not just allows you to create these clones, but as she says, lets you swap souls around. And there's a lot of really interesting little details about that. For example, it explains at one point that during the development of it, they used it to swap between two living people, not clones. And that this caused horrible, like, memory loss and kind of mind merging so that the people that were swapped could no longer tell which one they were or, um, you know, who was the 
who who is who anymore. Um, yeah, and there's a lot of discussion over what is a soul is a or does a soul even exist? Is your are your memories what makes a person? Can you move? Just because two different things have the same memories, do they are they the same thing? Or there's a lot of just theory over what it means to make a yeah. Clone. Are these clones mindless husks that you're swapping around in, or are they all actually you? It's really unclear, and that's kind of the you know feely mystery of the game. And it's what makes you feel like like I didn't get it as much immediately, but like. I played this game and Molly was watching me really early while playing this game. And I swapped over to a different version of myself and the original one died almost immediately after she was like, Oh my God, you just like, you just killed yourself. And it's like, that is a, a, a theme of this game. Like, did you just kill yourself? Is it still yourself? What does it mean to swap between these different clones. Yeah, if you if you're able to continue, do you still exist? Yeah, I actually had. Um, I think a lot of the plot is focused on the soul and the swapper, um, and what I found was kind of a missed opportunity was that the the clones, because mechanically they are your puppets, you are controlling them a hundred percent. As you create them, they move in tandem with you. They are synchronized. They don't have autonomy or individuality. Um, I found it less compelling as a um, as a clone story, and I think they were more interested in the soul moving around. You know, mm-hmm. um, Justin and I was talking about it. Well, if the clones, yeah, for example, after cloner. a certain time, moved on their own, if they had an idle pose, if they didn't stand stock still. Uh, if the clones had elements that would show that they were people, I think that it would actually be. Yeah, that's a really good point, Laura. I think actually even just a subtle idle animation to kind of make them move slightly wanted. out of sync with the main clone, e- even if they were moving roughly in sync, I think that would have been an interesting choice. It would definitely add layers to mm-hmm. it because yeah. that's the question right now mm-hmm. is like, so the swapper theoretically swaps the soul about i think they even say those words exactly um they're very british it swaps the soul about it swaps (laughs) the soul about and so if they would give the clones unique movement then i do think that would add an extra layer to the meaning of it like a sonic the hedgehog foot tap (laughs) exactly Real edgy. Yeah, they, they talk more about what it's like to move your soul between bodies, less about what it means to create a copy of you. Yeah. That's, create a body. They're not interested in the yeah. copy creation. They're interested in one soul being transferred. Well, I wonder if that was a choice then, because that that would be a whole other element that they don't talk about. Like, what happens when you're sit like, because every puzzle starts and stops with this this beam that clears all the clones. And they just solve that by, like, your clones don't exist outside of these puzzles, basically. Like, they're always going to be gone. And they just, yeah. they only talk about the soul. And I think that was a choice. Yeah. Not it necessarily. Was, it was definitely you know. a choice, and it made it more clear-cut. I just feel like it was a missed opportunity because the visceral nature of seeing the clothes die over and over is a very distinctive memory. And it's not yeah, picked yeah, up it's kind of hand waved. Yeah, I agree because you are one thing, and you might spend like it's very often that you will spend the majority of a puzzle controlling one body, making all of these different clones, and then 
at the very end, you'll swap to the one to collect the orbs, right? And then that one that you controlled for the majority of the puzzle dies because it falls off or it gets absorbed or whatever. And it is a little weird. It's like, well, I was that one for the majority. Like, that's me. But now this is me. And and I think that's the question they're trying to ask. Like, what does the soul mean? And <laughs> Blah, 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 soul, blah, blah, blah. So, I don't know. There is no God. I don't know. <laughs> So as we progress through the plot, we learn that the whole crew of this base station is gone because more and more of them were being killed off by the psychic interference of the Watchers. The Watchers were beginning to invade their dreams, invade their minds, eventually kill them. And the uh, one person that we are interacting with, Chalmers, we eventually discover how she survived. And this is sort of the culmination of the plot. Um, we've been coming across memory terminals and most of them were just showing us text, but eventually we come across a memory terminal that actually shows us a video of the past. And it's a very evocative, interesting scene. And this is where I think some of us were drawing slightly different conclusions about the ending. Um, so we see a scene where there are two brains in jars in a room and someone in a spacesuit that looks exactly like our player character comes in and has a conversation with these brains in jars. And so what we learn is that Chalmers and Dennett were the last two people alive on the space station. They had locked themselves in a lab that was heavily shielded, so they were protected from the psychic intrusion of the, um, of the Watchers. But they were in there for the long haul. There's no help expected and they were going to starve to death. So they swapped their brains into these basically brains in jars that allowed them to sit in these jars for a decade or more, um, not requiring any food or anything and just wait it out. If you're thinking of Futurama, it does not look anything like Futurama, <laughs> just little, with little heads in jars. No, indeed. The jars kind of look the same. Many, many years later, the scene that we're seeing, a person who's only described as the scavenger looks just like our player character, walks in, picks up the swapper device, and has a conversation with these two brains. And the, the brains convince this scavenger in the spacesuit that the only way that any of them are getting out alive is if they all swap into the scavenger's body and combine their minds and escape. Yeah, they create a three-in-one brain, which does explain to a degree the manic um, mentality of the person that's been leading you throughout this entire story. You're getting a lot... Sometimes it, it... Like, this was confusing to me as I was playing it, and it made sense after watching this cutscene, that the, the main voice of the person that's leading you through would often say contradictory things, mm -hmm. like... I, you'd think they're talking to yourself. Like they would say, like, why are you doing this? This isn't going to work. What are you doing? And I'd be sitting there like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just solving puzzles. You're the one who's <laughs> telling me what to do. And you come to find out that it's more, it, it's essentially three brains controlling one body. And so they're, they're actually talking to themselves, not to you. 
and it, it, it clears up a lot of the confusion that I had. It does. But one thing that I, I almost missed and then had a little bit of a aha at the end about was that just before the scavenger performs this sort of three-brain swap, after she picks up the swapper gun, she plays around with it and creates a swap. She creates a clone. And then she... Uh, it, the the video cuts out for a moment. You don't see what became of that clone. And in a moment, a moment later, she's talking to the brains in the jars, and she says, "What's going on here? Who was that? Who was that that I just ejected into space?" And that's, I think, who it's you. That's it's the player you. character. That's why she's got this. Oh my god! <laughs> that was me showing my brain exploding. Oh my god! Yeah, I. <laughs> okay. Now I know. I said very early in this episode that I have no idea who I am. Oh, that's super interesting. And it explains why the game begins with the person in the spacesuit, your player character, banging on the windows and then being ejected out of the space station and landing on the planet and then having to come back. Yeah, it doesn't explain why you don't get erased when you go through light beams. When you go through Hand light wave. beams. But, <laughs> but if you yourself are a clone, then that would mean every clone you made has its own mentality and capability of making its exactly. Own it means that oh. all it took was for that clone to get I don't know maybe ten feet away from the original scavenger, and suddenly that clone is an independent person. Um, which which is why uh, I really wanted in a puzzle for clones to get too far away from me and start acting up. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I wanted out of this game. Yeah. I wanted yeah. a clone to have an idle animation, and I wanted a clone to kind of start moving on its own if it got too far away. That's that's all I wanted. Mm-hmm. So the, I, I, I kind of agree with you. I think that they chose to keep it. It's already complex, and if you start adding that in even more, like, but... Yeah, I thought the gravity plates went too far. It's already too complicated. One of the brains, uh, I forget which of the two, Chalmers or the other one, um, thinks that the only way that they can continue surviving, because that's a big theme of this game, is you do what you have to do to stay alive, is that they should merge their headspace, merge their brains with the Watchers. And this can be accomplished by swapping with, they call it the head watcher, and it's basically a giant rock It's a tiki. (laughs) Yeah, it looks like a tiki, exactly. And they say they have no idea why it looks like a head, but, you know, it's obviously just Why is awesome? Yeah, (laughs) Game design. Exactly. It's a mechanic. It looks cool. It doesn't matter. And... One of the two that two of the brains in the jars thinks it's stupid. Like we should not merge our heads, our our mind, our headspace with the watchers. The other one's like we have to do what we have to do to survive, and that is like the the overarching theme to me is how far are you willing to go to stay alive how many of yourself are you willing to destroy how many of other people are you willing to destroy their minds in order to in order to what does it mean to be alive what does it mean to be alive does the body matter is that the soul if there is a soul is the soul just yeah if your brain is merged with someone else's do you still exist if exactly if your body is destroyed but your mind continues in a different body do you still exist Mm -hmm. you know if we're swapping souls around, like where does a soul live? Is it is it in my brain, my body? It's in the gun, bro. It's in the gun. My essence? Do I have an essence? If my essence <laughs> is merged with yeah. someone else? 
And and so ultimately, whoever has total control of the body, and maybe it's a maybe it's an maybe it's all three of them have a equal parts, but they decide to and you see this in a, a cutscene, they do decide to use their swapper gun to merge their body with the watchers. And all throughout this, you've also been essentially talking to a rescue ship, a ship that is nearing Theseus and has been receiving uh, distress signals. And so you know that there's actually other people approaching, that there is a ending to this coming soon. And the the well, the, Nate, I want you to spoil the ending for those those listeners careless enough to be too far away from their pause button. <laughs> <laughs> so you have you see them merge themselves with the head watcher, and actually, as you as you walk past more and more boulders, the the great chain is getting a little skewed, and you start to see some language that appears to be from Chalmers and Dennett and the scavenger saying like, we're alive or is this alive? Are we, do we exist anymore? Because essentially now they're just rocks with some version of a, of a existence of a recognition that they're alive and the space station, the rescue ship lands and they are capable of scanning your body and they recognize that there is some sort of alarm going off. Something is wrong with you and you don't really know exactly what it is. You can make your inferences as to what's wrong with you, but the space station that's there to rescue recognizes there's something's wrong with you and they decide that it is in their best interest to leave you on the planet or on the spaceship and you have just a second to make a choice about the ending because there's a great big pit in front of you and then across the pit is your rescuer turning around to walk out and you've got basically the choice of do i swap with that guy before he gets back into his ship or do i let him leave without me and i at this moment put my controller down and walked out of the room (laughs) because i was not expecting this decision do you do what you have to do to survive is that living taking your mind or your soul or whatever and putting it into the body of this random guy that you just met you assume that if you swap with him some version of that mind melding that happened between the two brains and the scavenger would happen or if you stay on the planet you know you're gonna die what decision do you make I know I chose just off the spur of the moment, you know, the active choice. I chose to swap with the guy and he walks back onto his spaceship and has a little conversation with his crewmates where it's clear something's wrong. Yeah, he doesn't say anything. Um, But it was an interesting ending. Um, I I loved it. I, I was not expecting to have to make that decision. It's essentially, do you kill or some form of kill this innocent person who essentially came to rescue you and possibly alter yourself forever. Yeah. Yeah. And alter yourself in order to keep some version of yourself alive at the expense of this innocent person. I am so trained by video games to try to stay alive at all costs (laughs) that I, even though I knew pretty much Nate, we we had been chatting. I knew what choice you had made. And I was like, huh, I should probably play different so we see the different endings for the show. I, in the spur of the moment, could not 
decide to die in that game. I tr- I tried. I was like, uh, I should jump off this cliff. Nope. I'd be willing to bet most people did just what you, me, and Shane all yeah, did. Yeah, and I did. Well, I mean, I again, I would like to say that I was such a moral person that I decided not to harm the innocent, but in re- not to harm the innocent. But in reality, I knew that most of you guys had picked the other ending. Um, and I also was just curious because I, I had the feeling that if I were a game designer, I would make the choice to stay on the planet more uh-huh. interesting. You know, I even knew that. I even felt like it's probably more interesting if I don't. And I couldn't just, I just couldn't not pull the trigger. You do what you have to do. It would be more fun. Well, the thing is, if you don't choose to swap, he just walks away and leaves you there, and then nothing happens for a while, and there's a pit in front of you, and you can't jump up, and you can't you can't clone yourself anymore outside for some reason. So all you can do is throw yourself down the pit, and as you fall down the pit... Um, little watcher messages send you notes about, you know, um, you know, at least you won't lose your identity for whatever short time you have left. And then you crumple into a pile and die. Except you're already the clone of somebody that is, uh, right, but it basically it says you won't merge with somebody else. <laughs> yeah, I think the, the, the thing that makes but this But you're still one mind. But you're not because you're an extension of the mind that created you to begin with if you really are the clone of the scavenger. Right, but <sighs> I think the difference this game tries to make is that they try to distinguish between the clone of one mind and a melded mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's something that is not supported by the mechanics. It's only supported by the story is that there's an inherent difference between two minds melded as one and an individual who clones themselves but is still an individual. Mm-hmm. Completely unsupported by mechanics, only by plot, but the ending does bear that out, that by deciding not to merge with somebody else is the decision. The number of clones you make of yourself is completely irrelevant. It's the moral decision. Like I feel like this is what's going to stick with me longer than the mechanics of this game. Like The plot... While it's not incredibly pervasive, it's not it's not incredibly driving. This final moment when it asks me, "Do I swap?" I had I I was totally blown away, and I had to set down the controller and think about it for a while. I walked into the room, was talking to Molly. I was like, "I don't know what to do. I'm so torn." <laughs> Every like all of the other characters are saying, "You do what you have to do to survive." And I get that. Like, that makes sense. That's basic human instinct. But then the morality of it, you know what it's going to do to the innocent guy who just tried to save you. And I felt like the game was all the way leading up to this one decision. And I thought it was incredibly well done. Yeah, they did a good job of presenting an actually interesting kind of philosophical question right at the end of the game. And I mean, it's a video game. You know, you're going to make this choice one way or the other. The only impact it's going to have on your life is, do I see one ending versus the other? You know, I'm going to see 10 seconds of animation that's going to be different. But it was interesting. I mean, it was cool. Yeah. And we've played other games that try to, that are like, are story-based decisions, right? Like The Walking Dead is probably the best uh, thing that I can think of at the moment that we've played for the show where you make decisions that are supposed to be moral based, but you know that they're also going to have gameplay uh, outcomes. And even while playing the walking dead, my first thought has been, what is this going to do to the gameplay? Mm-hmm. 
With this one, my first thought in the overarching decision-making was, how do I feel making this decision? And I thought that was what was most successful about it. And I think that's what's going to stick with me longer than the actual, like, there's some awesome, really good puzzles in this game. And if there weren't, we wouldn't have all played it all the way through. The puzzles are really good. But it's it's this, like, these questions that the game puts forth that I think are actually probably the more long-lasting effect of the game. And probably what hit me harder than like, oh, that was a good puzzle. That was fun. That was hard. And I did not expect that. Yeah, exactly. I think for me, unfortunately, it's the opposite. I I really did feel like the puzzles were stronger than the story for me. Yeah. I think I probably fall in between, but I I definitely enjoyed this game. And I'm really glad that we played it for the show. I'm glad I gave it a second shot. Because like I said, that first shot I gave it, I didn't get far enough to get it. I didn't get far enough into it to appreciate it. But once I did, I really, really enjoyed this game. The thing I liked about this game was that it was free on my PlayStation. <laughs> and, I had to uh, pay for it, guys. Oh, Laura, Speaking I'm so sorry. Of, oh, well, I yeah. also had to pay for it. I actually had to pay $17 to sign up for three months of PlayStation Plus. Uh, actually, $18 to sign up for three months of PlayStation Plus for it. Just do the 12 months. You yeah. know you're going to get it for 12 And months. everyone else who's listening to this who didn't buy it during that free period is going to have to pay for it so yeah how long did it take everybody to complete this game seven hours i am right there with you i think it took me eight eight hours and and the teleport wasn't working so it it was a complete fluke um there was something weird with my uh, mouse wasn't registering clicks so um right clicks so I couldn't use a teleport until the very end when I changed my settings. Hmm, weird. So I ended up with seven hours. A lot of that was walking. That's too bad. Well, I actually took more like eight and that was without problems. So I guess you're just a lot better at puzzles than I am. But um, I think that was a really good length for this. I don't. This is the kind of thing that like Portal, I think and Portal 2 managed to make a much longer game, but it did it by throwing all kinds of things at you. Um with just a single simple mechanic and a sort of limited set of possible puzzles, um, this is just right in terms of length. Um, yeah, I think I want to say six hours. I was not keeping track, um, but I I think it was three to four play th- like sit downs of playing for no more than two hours. So I can't say exactly how long I played, but I didn't let any puzzle beat me down. I just. If I hit one that I was stuck on, I just kind of stopped playing. Mm-hmm. And that was what ended my play session. It's also right in that sweet spot in terms of price. I think a lot of the games we've covered on this show are right in that $15 price range, which I think is sort of seems to be now becoming the standard for games of this sort of size and uh, and uh, and length and indie games generally. And uh, I think this game is a bargain at 15 bucks. I think it's a really, really solid game. Um, if you get it on PlayStation Plus, then it's free. If you had PlayStation Plus for the month of January 2015, um, I can't keep track of dates. Um, or if you have that humble bundle I was talking about, the humble indie bundle 11. Um, but even if you don't, this is totally worth picking up. Uh, I would recommend checking it out through the Humble Store because the Humble Store, of course, gives 10% of the proceeds to charity and you can feel a little bit good about yourself while wasting money on games. And you're going to feel terrible about yourself upon completion of this game. (laughs) So you might as well do what you can for the real world. Might weigh things out a little bit in your favor. (laughs) Swap the poor. (laughs) Swap the poor? I mean, I want you to wear a T-shirt that says that. 
so I don't think we know yet what our next topic is going to be, but we've got a really great list up at theshortgame.net. If you visit there and click on our upcoming episodes link, you'll see our full list of upcoming episodes, including the full list of games that we are considering. And we want to hear from you. If you have ideas about games that would be right for this show or that you want to hear us talk about for, you know, way longer than the game takes to complete, then you can give us a, a shoot us an email at info at theshortgame.net or you can follow us on Twitter at underscore short game. Uh, I've been your host, Reagan Kelly. And of course, you can follow me on Twitter at Reagan K. I spell that R-A-Y-G-A-N-K. Laura, where can people find you? I'm also really active on Twitter at Laura J. Nash. She is indeed active on Twitter. She's a much better tweeter than I am. And she's always tweeting interesting links about game design, UI design, and other interesting things about the internet. I am actually paid to consult with people on social media, so... I kind of have to be good at it as part of my job. Well, you're doing just fine. <laughs> um, Nate, where can people find you on Twitter and uh, elsewhere? You can find me on Twitter at Nate STL. And baseball season's about to be starting up again, right? It is. I, I know the, that these um, these worlds don't often collide. But if you happen to be a fan of the St. Louis Cardinals specifically, you can listen to my other podcast, and that's called Talking About Birds. And Shane, where can people find you? People can reach me at 8BitShane. Um, I do not professionally consult about about social media. Missing out. Uh, but I am the best <laughs> Twitterer ever. I got retweeted a whole bunch like even like two or three times this week. So uh, I want to thank those people that retweeted me. And I want to thank the no extra people who reviewed our podcast in iTunes. We still have 17 iTunes reviews. No, no bitterness, Shane. No bitterness. We love you. Please keep listening. Sorry, I'm yelling. We love our listeners. We love you. We love your uh, we love your feedback and we love uh, we love hearing from you. But one of the best ways to support the show uh, is to and leave keep us Shane a review from yelling at you. and to keep Shane from yelling at you is uh, to give us a review on Dimes. iTunes. Uh, if you visit theshortgame.net and click our iTunes button right there on the homepage uh, or find the link at the bottom of the show notes, then you can leave no, us a review. No, don't tell them to go to the site. Eternally tell, go, go to iTunes. Open up your freaking iTunes. I know it auto-installed when you plugged in that iPod five years ago. <laughs> Open up your iTunes and click on the search thing in the corner that looks like a little magnifying glass and type in the name of the show that you're yeah, listening just, to. Yeah, just do that. All right. And then there's, you'll see a thing with stars. That's where you review us. Do it. Or I will swap your brain and I will make you walk <laughs> off of a cliff. I... Listeners, I apologize for the uh, for the tone in which Shane made that request. I don't. And thank you guys and thanks again to you listeners for joining us on another episode of the short game. <laughs>